Hi everyone, Donald Lowry here, and I'm the marketing director for Contra Radio Network. You know what helps me sleep well? Physical gold. Gold IRAs help people diversify. The best gold IRA company is Augusta Precious Metals, with thousands of happy customers. Learn why Americans get gold IRAs. Get Augusta's free guide. Text CONTRA to 68592. That's C-O-N-T-R-A to 68592. Or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. That's AugustaPreciousMetals.com. Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello again, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here for another exciting, informative edition of the Jeffers Brief, only on CRN, Contra Radio Network, which I am the founder and overlord thereof. Welcome. Welcome, Intelligentsia. If you're just joining us, you're new, you've never been here. Intelligentsia is what I call my listeners because they're smart enough to listen to my show. I know. There's a question. I got a lot of questions here. We've got a lot to talk about. How about this? Why do people wait until the last minute to prep for emergencies? Well, here, coming to you from the Augusta Precious Metal Studio, I am going to give you the answer to that question. I am. I'm going to give it to you. Uh, Linda Loosley, uh, she's the owner and editor of Food Storage Maps. She asked the same question. Here's the answer. You know, in emergency situations, being prepared can make a significant difference in potential risk and ensuring personal safety. However, it is perplexing, however, why so many people tend to wait until the last minute to start preparing. So, there is no rhyme or reason why people wait. They just do. But here are some ideas of why they might wait. You know, people are going to do what they want to do. That's just the way it is. So, number one is procrastination and fear. One of the primary reasons people delay emergency preparations is the fear associated with a potential disaster. Uh, thinking about worst-case scenarios can be overwhelming. For some people, they live in this nightmare world all the time. They'll sit on the couch watching the news 24-7, just waiting, waiting for a word to break so they can jump and go and put everything into motion. Now, because it's overwhelming, it leads some individuals individuals, uh, to put off taking action, of course, till the threat is right in front of them. It is often easier to deny the possibility of a disaster or assume that it will never happen to them, which creates a sense of false security. So fear really can fuel a transformation. Man, it's not always a good one, though. How about optimism bias? 
Another psychological factor contributing to last-minute preparations is the optimism bias. Now, this is when people believe that they are less likely to experience negative events compared to others. Of course, this usually means they underestimate the probability of an emergency occurring and overestimate their ability to handle the situation if it does happen. This optimism bias can lead to a lack of urgency in taking precautionary measures. How about a lack of awareness? Now, many individuals simply lack awareness about the importance of emergency preparedness, and they don't fully understand the potential consequences of being ill-prepared or underestimate the severity of a potential disaster. Time constraints and busy lifestyles. Modern life is fast-paced. People are juggling multiple responsibility. And it's this busy lifestyle often leaves little time for individuals to prioritize uh, emergency preparedness. They just don't. They run out of time. They're tired. Look, you get home, you're tired. You've been working all day. You've been listening. You, you, you just That's the last thing you want to do, last thing you want to think of. How about you get overwhelmed and decision paralysis? You know, the uh, what, what, what's that saying? You, you analyze till, till you're paralyzed, you know? So emergency preparedness involves numerous tasks. Creating disaster kit, developing an evacuation plan, staying informed about potential threats. The sheer magnitude of these responsibilities can be overwhelming, leading to decision paralysis. Sometimes you just have so much to do, you don't know where to start. And we feel this way all the time in our lives. It is true. Like I said, some days you get home from work, you don't want to do this. You just want to go eat your dinner, be left alone, and veg out and go to bed, and you get to do it all over again. What a privilege. You know, past experiences, you know, personal experiences can influence the level of preparedness for emergencies. Uh, if someone has never encountered an emergency or disaster, they may underestimate the likelihood of one occurring in the future. And those who have experienced an emergency might be more inclined to prepare in advance due to the impact of their past experience. How about the perception of inconvenience? It is true, preparing for emergent often requires time, effort, financial resources. And some people may perceive these preparations as unnecessary, especially if they believe that emergencies are unlikely to happen in their specific location. This perception of inconvenience can act as a deterrent, leading individuals to postpone prep until they feel compelled to do so, which at that point, it could very well be too late. Why is it important to plan for an emergency? Well, when you prioritize your safety and your safety of your loved ones, having a well-thought-out emergency plan ensures that you know what to do, where to go, and how to stay safe during a crisis. Does that mean your family will listen to you? No, it does not. As a matter of fact, the fact is you have very little credibility with your family or people that know you very well. They don't take you seriously. Wait till the shit hits the fan. Will they take you seriously then? Perhaps. And they'll be 
Can I have some of your water? Your request is hereby denied. Move along. So what is the most important part of emergency planning? Clear communication is important. It helps to get out vital information about the emergency, such as the nature of the crisis, evacuation procedures, safe locations, and any updates or changes in the situation. This ensures that everyone is aware of what is happening and what actions need to be taken, which, by the way, I believe on October 4th, my friends, there will be a national test of the emergency broadcast system, the EBS, my friends. And we're talking, they're going to go TV, radio, your cell phone, internet, everything. I believe that's scheduled for October 4th. I, I think it might change. I, last I heard it was October 4th. FEMA's going to let it go and see if it works. And that's good. This is the time for them to do it. All right? It is the time to do it. See if it works. What doesn't work, you got time to fix. You know, understanding the psychology behind why people wait till the last minute to prepare for emergencies is vital in teaching people to be prepared. When we talk about these things, it can help everyone prepare, be prepared sooner instead of waiting till the last minute. So why do the people you know wait until the last minute to prep for emergencies? I think, I think it's a good question, actually. What else can we talk? Did you, by the way, I want you to understand this, my friends. This is important. You know, since my heart attack and subsequent triple bypass, I've become kind of a gym rat. Okay, it's true. I am. I have become one. I'm not sorry for it. I'm going to tell you why. As you learn to exercise and you build up your stamina, it is stamina that's going to keep you going, my friends. And if you don't build it up and you do not test yourself, you will fail. You will let down those that depend on you. Stamina builds up when you exercise. You do cardio. For example, today was a two and a half mile trail walk with the dog. Why? Because he likes it. And yes, it's true, every 10 feet he stops to take a pee. Even if he's got nothing left in his bladder, we still must go through the motions nonetheless. But I let him do it. I don't care. Because we're walking a long way. We're going uphill, we're going downhill. We're not on the road, we're on the trails. I don't care how long it takes me. Now, it is true I do set a fast pace. Some days I'll do five miles. Some days I'll do just a mile and a half. Today was two and a half miles. This is why it's important. Training. Think of it as training. Don't think of it as exercise. If you're a prepper, if you're a patriot, if you're preparing to fight, which, by the way, stamina is going to help you in that, in that particular uh, situation. If you don't have the stamina, 
How long do you think you can actually hang into a physical altercation? How long can you maintain a fight? How long can you hang in there? A minute? Two minutes? Three minutes? What is your level of discomfort or pain can you handle? These are questions only you can ask. But I can tell you this, the more you exercise, the more stamina you have, the longer you can hang in a fight. It's true. I will, I will bet you dollars to, I'll bet you paychecks. I will take on anybody who is not worked out, who is a slug and a slob. Yes, they talk a good game. No, they are not ready for it. It's more than just mental preparation. It's also physical preparation. That means you have to exercise before the bad juju comes down on you. When karma decides it's time to take a squat and shit all over you, you had better be ready to go with it. That's why you exercise. That's why you do cardio. That's why you lift weights. You don't have to lift a lot of weight. Go lift 20 pounds, but lift it 20 times. It's okay. You're not in competition for Mr. Universe or Mr. Olympus. You aren't. You are not. You are in it for one reason only. Get yourself prepared. Get yourself ready. Part of it in getting yourself ready and whatnot is learning how to eat properly to take care. I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again. Watch your sodium intake. No more than 2,400. That's 2,400 milligrams for those of you at the public school education. 2,400 milligrams of sodium per day. That's it. Less is better. Well, what's that? What do they say? Less is more? It is. The less you take of sodium, the better it is for you, for your body. Eat fresh. Eat fresh. You heard that term? Eat fresh? Don't eat canned stuff. Now, one of the, you know, one of the things, this is a true story. When I was with the sheriff's office, we would have to go through training every year. Sometimes it was, uh, it was uh, CPR. You got to get, you got to get recertified every year. Why? Did I forget it? Did I somehow forget how to do CPR in the last year I got to recertify again? No. One of the things that they used that we used to do is you have to, to you know we had to take our firearms and we have to go qualify with them. Do it every year. Why? You might have forgot how to shoot. No, it's a liability. Some lawyer said, "When's the last time you shot your weapon? What did you shoot? Did you even shoot state minimum qual?" Here in Illinois, I think the state minimum is like seventy percent. For um, our department, it was 85%. So, they would also back, okay, where, where did it start? Early 90s, pepper spray just came out. We're going to give everybody pepper spray. Okay. Part of the pepper spray certification is you got to be pepper sprayed with it. 
Why? So you know what it feels like. Oh, really? Okay. Don't worry, it's coming. Then, of course, in the early 2000s, Taser! Why carry a Taser? You gotta get shot with the Taser. Why? So you know what it feels like. Oh, okay. Somebody takes away your Taser and uses it on you. You know what to expect, how to fight through it. Oh, okay. Well, if I have to be pepper sprayed so I know what it's like, and I have to be tased so I know what it's like, but yet, when we do hand-to-hand -hand combat, defensive tactics, sometimes it's called empty-handed tactics, uh, we've just, we, you know, we, we pick, we partner up, and then you grab a partner, and you go through the techniques, and they show you how to put your hands to lock their wrist out and all that other stuff, which is good to know. Never... But they never said, hey, we're going to put the boxing gloves on you. For those of you, look, there are people out there who've never, ever, ever been in a fight in their entire life. They've never been in a fight. Not even they're in school. Never, ever, ever. So what are they going to do when they get hit? I don't know. We never said, put here, put on these boxing gloves. We're, you you got to know what it's like to take a hit and how to throw a punch. I have seen people, and I swear to you, my friends, I am not lying when I tell you this. They make their fist by putting their thumb in here. And they're going like this. I'm thinking, you're going to break your damn thumb. What the hell's wrong with you? Have you people not been shown? It's like, and then I'm thinking back to it. This are, these are the society has created these special snowflakes. I don't even know what to say. So, we don't do that, but you can use a chemical weapon on me so I know what it's like, you know, the pepper spray. Deploy a chemical weapon on my ass so I know what it's like. Here's 50,000 volts. Ride the lightning, baby, so you know what it's like before you can carry it. Does that mean I have to be shot with my own service weapon? My own service firearm. Do I need to be shot so I know what it's like? Oh, I know. Here. You got an expandable baton? Why don't you beat my ass with that so I know what it's like? Here. Beat my knees so I know what it's like. Of course not. That's how ridiculous that philosophy is. And when you bring it up to them, they go, well, that's just ridiculous. Is it? You're deploying a chemical weapon on me so I know what it's like. You're tasering me, so I know what it's like. But, however, to be fair, because we brought up all these instances about the, their, their failure and their philosophy and their training philosophy, they said, well, you don't have to be tased with it to carry a taser. I chose not to carry a taser for a couple reasons. One, it's just another piece of equipment i got to be responsible for. No. No. And I had, I had command officers say, you have to carry one. I said, no, I do not. I will not carry one. And I do not consent on you zapping me with it. But you have to. 
you have to you have to go through certification. You're going to carry it. Well, I, I don't want to go through certification. I don't want to carry it. You don't? No. Okay. <laughs> That's a true story. So, but anyways, I learned then what they used to do is they make us run like half a mile and then go to the firing line, draw down for our qualification, which I thought was good training. You see, during training, they would say, well, you could wear street clothes to training. I did not do that. I chose to wear what I wear at work since I would be, I'm not going to be wearing street clothes at work. I had to wear a uniform. I had to wear body armor. I had to, everything I wore at work, I wore to training. I trained that, with that, in that, for that reason. Now, was it a little bit harder? Yeah, it was a little bit harder. But that's how I train. I train for the reality of what I got to deal with. And the reality is I'll be wearing a uniform should I need to deploy a chemical weapon. Should I need to deploy my firearm? Or, you know, or I, or I have to just go duke it out with somebody. I had to do that more often than not. And that was the weirdest part. We spend more time on firearm and liability than we do on teaching our guys how to fight. I've, I've been in a lot of fights in school. I got fights in the classroom. I got fights on the playground. I was a little asshole. I was. I won some fights. I lost some fights. But I wasn't afraid to get into it. I just didn't like it. But I wasn't afraid to get into it. How, we got too many people afraid. What about you? You know, so part of the building, the, the, getting into gym shape and prepper shape, prepper fit, being gym fit is about the stamina. You've got to sit here and work at it. It's not fun, but it's necessary for you to survive. Part of it is diet. You have to know. One of the things as human beings is we suffer from magnesium deficiency. The question is, when does it become a problem? I'm going to tell you. What is magnesium? It's a mineral that helps your body work properly. But your body can't make magnesium on its own. So you have to get it from what? Your diet. Now, a low magnesium level, also called hypomagnesemia, is a blood magnesium below 1.7 milligrams per deciliter. There are several different causes like poor dietary intake or loss of magnesium from the urinary or digestive tract. Severe magnesium deficiency can cause problems with the function of your nervous system and heart. It can lead to things like muscle spasms, seizures, or heart arrhythmias. Need I say more? I do. Oral or intravenous magnesium can supplement a low magnesium level. But it's important to find and address the underlying cause, my friends. Now, magnesium is, is, is a mineral the body uses for many processes in every organ and cell. We often hear about other electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and calcium, and less about magnesium. But like these other electrolytes, magnesium plays a critical role in our metabolism and overall functioning. It's important for the nervous system and the heart's electrical conduction system. Need I say more? I do. 
Low or deficient magnesium levels, also called hypomagnesemia, can cause a variety of problems, and some are more serious than others. So, low magnesium levels cause a range of different parts of the body. Now, many of the symptoms involve problems with the electrical conduction in your nervous system and heart. Some of the symptoms of hypomagnesium may include weakness and fatigue, tremors or muscle twitching, muscle cramping, heart palpitations or heart arrhythmias, numbness, seizures, confusion, or mood changes. In many cases, low magnesium is associated with low levels of other important electrolytes. Calcium and potassium are especially common. That's because low levels of these electrolytes share common causes. So what happens if you're malnourished and you don't get enough foods that have magnesium? Well, you can take supplements. That will work. Now, low magnesium intake is very common in people with alcohol use disorder. In other words, you're a freaking alcoholic. You're having issues. And poor magnesium absorption in the digestive tract can happen even if you eat enough magnesium in your eat enough of your magnesium in your diet. So examples will include celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, gastric bypass surgery. And you can lose magnesium through your digestive tract when you vomit or have diarrhea for any reason. So you have loss of magnesium through the urinary tract. Diuretics that treat high blood pressure and heart conditions. Antibiotics. Uh, heart conditions like hydrochlorothiazide. Yeah, try saying that. Don't ask me to do it again. Chemotherapy medications like cisplatin and proton pump inhibitors like pantoprazole. I take pantoprazole. Many people do. So conditions that cause you to urinate more can also lead to well, big loss of magnesium. High blood sugar from diabetes is one common cause. Also inherited conditions that lead to hypomagnesemia through the urine includes Barter syndrome and Gittleman syndrome. So there, that in and of itself should tell you what you need to do. Treatment. You want to know what treatment is? Here, this is some of the stuff you could it has high magnesium. Nuts and nut butters, especially almonds, peanuts, and cashews. Spinach, grains like rice and whole wheat, breads and cereals. Black beans and edamame. Soy milk, yogurt, potatoes. A serving of each of the food, above foods I just told you contains 40 to 80 milligrams of magnesium. And experts recommend that adults consume 400 milligrams of magnesium every day. Now, it may be easier than you think. A small serving of pumpkin or chia seeds contain up to 150 milligrams of magnesium. So there you have it. It's, you got to have magnesium, boys and girls. Um, I take magnesium and potassium every day. Why? Because I'm smart. Um, something else. Some of you sometimes have fitness tracker and we're going to talk about those in a moment because I've got things I've got to do that's why 
with that said, what do we have here today? Hmm. Oh, where did it, where did it go? For the past nine years, you've been listening to John Jeffers talk about prepping, politics, and anything he thought you should know about. Hello, I'm Sydney Jeffers, and John is my dad. You know, some people will take the chance to unlock infinite possibilities to change their future. Some will not even try at all. Which one are you? You see, my dad started selling data storage for people. He thinks being a prepper means backing up and saving all your data on your computers and cell phones. Being prepared means not just on the lookout for a disaster coming your way, but for everyday life. It's a fact that people have had their hard drives crash, computer and phones stolen, even lost or damaged. There are lots of companies offering to store and save your data, and they mean to charge you a pretty penny for it too. But with Got Backup, you only pay $9.97 a month for 6 terabytes of storage. My dad says that this is the best value in the industry, so you owe it to yourself to be his customer. Don't be the person who waits until it's too late when you've lost all of your important pictures, videos, music, paperwork, and data, and say to yourself, I should have turned the key and got back up. So, Intelligentsia, the question remains, which person are you going to be? Go to www.john-jeffers.com. Again, www.john-jeffers.com and be my dad's customer. You'll be glad when that day comes. Hi everyone, Donald Lowry here, and I'm the marketing director for Contra Radio Network. You know what helps me sleep well? Physical gold. Gold IRAs help people diversify. The best gold IRA company is Augusta Precious Metals with thousands of happy customers. Learn why Americans get gold IRAs. Get Augusta's free guide. Text CONTRA to 68592. That's C-O-N-T-R-A to 68592. Or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. That's AugustaPreciousMetals.com. This is the CONTRA Radio Network. CRN for all the right reasons. Indeed, indeed. From, from, from the DMZ to the NATO front, this is CRN. Indeed, indeed. Now, sometimes you got a fitness tracker. I've got one. Uh, the one I like, and it's old. Technology that first came to the market in 2014, 10 years ago. I like it. It suits the function. They don't even make them anymore. So what I do is, you know, I, I got one. I said, well, this is pretty, I like the one. I got the LJ, the LJ, the LG Urban uh, 2. I like it. Works for me. I like the way it feels. It's a quality, quality piece of equipment. However, they don't make them anymore. Haven't for a while. So what I do is I go to, like, uh, Amazon refurbishment. I'll go to eBay. And I find them on there. I'll buy them up. And I put them in the whole storage. That, that's what I do. But some of the things, there are, some good other, there are some other good fitness trackers out there. The questions you have to ask are, which ones are accurate? You know, so we're going to talk about who has the most and least reliable metrics. So whether it's the Apple Watch, 
a Fitbit, an Aura Ring, Garmin Forerunner, you know, to name just a few. But wearables have become as integrated into our daily use and lives as a smartphone or any other part of our clothing. And as the market cap and development of wearables has progressed from semi-cumbersome gadgets that can only track a few data points to sleek items that track the distances of our steps, how well we sleep, what our heart rate variability is like, and so on, the reliance on wearables is also naturally increased. That's true. However, with that expansion comes a potential double-edged sword, paralysis by analysis. Having so much data can easily overwhelm us. So what do all these stats actually tell us and what can we actually do with all that information? Well, knowing the most accurate fitness tracker metrics can be helpful here. So having more data and the awareness of all the factors that influence your health and fitness is great, says Andy Barr, fitness coach and owner of Quantum Performance. He says, but I found that an increasing number of clients are deluged with the abundance of data from the wearable devices and unable to make heads or tails of it without spending considerable time doing their own research and educating themselves. Time they don't have and time they thought they would be saving by getting a wearable in the first place, end quote. So to maximize the value of data you're getting, focus on the most accurate fitness tracker metrics. So according to high-level research looking at the validity and reliability of wearables, the most widely accepted and backed use for wearables is to track heart rate. Second to heart rate is step counts. The next tier down, essentially the very mixed evidence tier, is using a wearable to track overall energy expenditure and heart rate variability. In the lowest, not generally accepted tier, is the VO2 max, training load, sleep, and stress. The lowest tier is not all that surprising when you consider the relative complexity of these metrics and how many variables that need to be accounted for. Now, opinions from leading experts align with the research in that wearables can be effective for simpler, trackable actions like counting steps, heart rate. But the more complex the action, the less accurate it is. Measuring complex variabilities like training load or stress is difficult to do accurately without advanced equipment and expert knowledge. So it's no surprise that wearable technology, which is still relatively in its infancy, is unable to do it reliably. This isn't a knock on wearables. The majority of health and fitness tech can't measure higher complex variables. They can't. But they're still excellent tools for major health indicators like heart rate and step count. So to make your wearable data more reliable and accurate for step count and heart rate, Dr. Barr says use your watch for 7 to 10 days Get a feel for the average because each wearable tracks things differently with different levels of error. Additionally, most wearables tend to overestimate things at lower and higher intensities, so you want to give it a larger sample size to get more accurate measurements. So to put it simply, don't take your wearable at face value immediately. Give it a week or so. Look at the fluctuations every day, and you should get a pretty good idea of your averages. There you go. There it is. Well, it's true. Uh, what do we got here? Here you go, my friends. We're going to talk about this, too. How about eight signs that we are on the verge of a major credit card debt crisis? 
Michael, economic collapse. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. We aren't quite there yet, but an enormous credit card debt crisis is definitely brewing. You see, Americans are becoming increasingly dependent on their credit cards to make ends meet month to month. The percentage of us that are carrying balances from month to month is growing, and the average rate of interest on such balance has risen above 20%. If you can possibly avoid it, do not carry credit card balances from month to month because that will strangle you financially. Unfortunately, our young people are never taught this in school, and so many of them get, a, get into deep financial trouble when they become adults. And once you get into deep financial trouble, it can take many years to get out of it. So I have not seen numbers like we are witnessing right now. Now here are eight signs that we are right on the verge of a major credit card debt crisis. Number one, the total amount of credit debt in the United States has surpassed the $1 trillion mark and is now at the highest level ever recorded. The New York Federal Reserve reported earlier in August, that's this month, that total credit card debt surged to $1.03 trillion during the three-month period from April to June, an increase of $45 billion, or 4.6% from the previous quarter. It marks the highest level on record in Fed data dating back to 2003. Number two, the average rate of interest on credit card balances has risen to an all-time record high of 20.63%. So you see the dual increase in credit card usage and delinquency rates is particularly concerning because interest rates are astronomically high right now. The average credit card annual percentage rate, or APR, hit a new record of 20.63% last week, according to Bankrate database that goes back to 1985. Number three. Whopping 47% of all U.S. cardholders are now carrying balances from month to month. Many cardholders from all age and income groups are carrying over credit card balances, with 47% saying they do so, up from 39% in December of 2021. The survey carried out in July finds age-wise 53% of Gen Xers carry over card balances from month to month. Next were Gen X consumers, 52% followed by millennials. 49% and baby boomers, 41%. The average credit card debt level in the United States just continues to grow. So the national average credit card debt grew to $7,227 according to the survey. Number five, most Americans are not running up credit card debt because they are making frivolous purchases. According to one industry insider, most Americans are doing it because they are under financial strain. Number six, the number of credit card delinquents in the U.S. has surged dramatically over the past two years. Delinquent accounts also indicates people are having a hard time keeping up with credit card payments. The number of accounts past due by one cycle has increased 42.6% over the last two years. Delinquencies have crept up to the highest level since 2017. Number seven, one recent survey discovered that many Americans are actually using personal loans to consolidate credit card debt, end up quickly running up new credit card balances close to their previous levels. And that takes about 18 months. Number eight, 
At a time when economic conditions are slowing down over the nations, Americans are becoming increasingly dependent on their credit cards. In fact, two in five Americans with credit cards said they were more dependent on their credit cards than ever before. 35% uh, said they won't be able to credit, pay off their credit card before the end of the year. In addition, another 35% of respondents said they're likely to max out at least one credit card by the end of 2023. The increased reliance on credit cards is likely to lead to many uh, even deeper in debt, which is especially troublesome with interest rates well into double digits. Unfortunately, a lot more Americans are likely to get into credit card trouble in the months ahead because the labor market is getting significantly tighter. As a matter of fact, today is my wife's last day being laid off. They're closing the law firm where she works. Unfortunately, a lot more Americans are likely to get into credit card trouble in the months ahead because the labor market is getting significantly tighter. In fact, new numbers have created quite a bit of alarm. With the consensus expecting only a modest dip or a modest drop in the July uh, job openings from 9.582 million to 9.5 million, the Bureau of Labor Statistics BLS reported instead was a doozy. In July, there were just 8.827 million job openings, the first sub 9 million print since March of 2021. It was also the third biggest miss on record. Worse, had the BLS not drastically slashed the May number from 9.582 million to a laughable 9.165 million, the drop would have been almost 800,000 job openings. And yes, today's downward revision continues the recent trend of every single data point in the Biden administration being sharply revised lower in subsequent months in a coordinated propaganda attempt to make the economy look stronger, then quietly revise it away when everyone forgets. They do it every fucking month. The economy is clearly headed for a very rough period, and the long-term outlook is even worse. Instead, now's the time to batten, to batten down the hatches. I would very much encourage you to get lean and mean financially, because those, are, those that are carrying high levels of debt are likely to experience a lot of pain during the stressful years ahead. There you go. It's true. My friends, it has come to my attention. Da, 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 da. What is this? Uh, let me see if I can even get this. This might. Uh, how am I going to do this? How is this? How does this work, Hogan? There we go. Do that. Oh, no. Can't do it, unfortunately. I can't do that one. That one's out. All right. Oh, did you guys see the video of that 12-year-old kid kicked out of class over the Gadsden video? Or the Gadsden flag? He's got the Gadsden flag patch, right? The imbeciles at his school to think these people are supposedly college educated. Just comes to show, go to college, you take you put your kids in there. They become indoctrinated little socialists 
morons. Now, Gateway Pundit has reported a Colorado school came up with ridiculous excuses to remove a 12-year-old from school uh, Monday for having a patriotic Gadsden flag patch. Connor Boyack, the president of Libertas, revealed that the Vanguard School in Colorado Springs told 12-year-old Jaden, last name's withheld because he's a juvenile, told him they had to remove the flag because it has origins with slavery and was disruptive to the classroom environment. When he refused, the child was dismissed. So, 12-year-old Jaden was kicked out of class in Colorado Springs for having a Gadsden flag patch, which the school claims has origins with slavery. The school's director said via email that the patch was disruptive in the classroom environment. Listen to it. Let's see if we can get this to play. So apparently it is just fine for our public schools to be filled with the LGBTQ pride propaganda. But children are not allowed to have symbols of our nation's founding. So kudos to this young man for standing up for himself and maintaining the fighting spirit that this nation was built upon. As Benjamin Franklin said, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So here you go. Here, here. Let's see, let's see if we can get this to go. Eh, is it gonna? Is it gonna fly? All right. But anyways, how pathetic is it? It is pathetic. It is. You know, some of the things that and I've noticed this, especially it's true. When we have indigenous people in these countries where we send our troops in to go to war or combat or whatever, when we leave, we don't bring those people that helped us back with us. They should be. They've earned the right. For example, in Vietnam, it was the Hmong tribesmen. He said, you help us when we leave, you get to come with us. If you want to come with us, we'll bring you with us. Same thing still happening in Afghanistan. We had many Afghans who helped the U.S. military. 78,000 of them. And we told them, you help us when we leave, or if we have to leave, whatever, we'll bring you with us. You can come live in the United States. So the Afghan refugees who helped the U.S. is still in limbo. Almost 78,000 Afghan refugees have come to America since the withdrawal. And two years on, they're still in limbo and struggling to find jobs. Allies and advocates are frustrated with the lack of long-term plans. So two years after escaping the evil, the evil Taliban leadership to start new lives, most are still in limbo. They have no idea how long they'll be allowed to stay here. 
Congress, imagine that, has yet to work out long-term plan for the residency and advocates are getting frustrated. Their plight adds to a list of blunders during the catastrophic evacuation, including a vetting process allowing 65 suspected terrorists to reach the United States. Farzana Jamalzada has deep ties to the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, having worked for USAID and former President Ashraf Ghani since, he, since she was 25. She was at the presidential palace when the word came down that Ghani had fled in 2021. Her husband worked at the Interior Ministry and both instantly knew they would have targets on their backs under the Taliban regime. They decided to flee separately and it took them days to find each other again at the airport in Qatar. And nearly a year after hopping between refugee camps through the U.S., they were processed and relocated to New York City where she and her husband have now both found employment, but not quickly. Humanitarian parole made the situation very difficult. Jamalzada, now 27, said, We had the language, we had the education, we had the background, and we had the career experience. My husband was giving interviews every day for months. In the aftermath of the chaotic withdrawal, the U.S. took in thousands of refugees, Afghans fleeing brutal Taliban rule, including many who fought alongside Americans in the war or worked to promote human rights in the nation. But to this day, the nation has only granted them temporary parole status, putting their legal cases on ice. This year, President Bribum gave the Afghans a reprieve. He renewed their parole and allowed refugees to apply for another two years of legal residency in the country. But residents, but refugees and advocates tell DailyMail.com that uh, that parole complicates job seeking as uh, employers don't understand their legal status, which is only guaranteed for two years. So those who came under Operation Allies Welcome can apply for asylum, and those who directly aided the U.S. mission under contract work can apply for a special immigrant visa. Others can try to apply for asylum, but both the asylum process and the SIVs have significant backlogs. Some wait as long as five years for their SIVs to be approved. In addition to the 80,000 who remain in limbo in the United States, advocacy groups estimate that over 150,000 Afghans who assisted the U.S. mission were left behind, doomed to wait for years due to the massive backlog. The Bipartisan Afghan Adjustment Act would allow Afghan parolees to apply for green cards and expand and improve the SIV process, which has introduced three times since the withdrawal. But so far, Congress has not found the political appetite to push it through. Well, duh, if they're in Congress, most of them are all political cowards anyways. In the Senate, the bill's co-sponsors are split almost evenly between Dems and Republicans. Proponents of the bill try to push it through with last year's omnibus package that set broad funding levels across agencies. But there are still divisions over the language of the bill. Now, some Republicans, like Grassley and Cotton, decided the vetting process in the bill was not up to par. They've introduced their own party-line version, the Insuring American Security and Protecting Afghan Allies Act. But that bill also includes a provision sure to turn Democrats off. It would limit the president's authority to grant humanitarian parole in the future. 
Uh, Moran, a Republican of Kansas, told Daily Mail he's working with colleagues to address vetting concerns and worries that the Afghan legislation might set a precedent for loosening immigration restrictions. Well, it's true. Now, before we get into this, let me do this. Do a little break here. You know, I always have like, uh, I told you last week, you know, I like listening to Sergio Mendez and Brazil 66. I think that was the best of the Mendez Brazil groups. Uh, there was Brazil 77, 78, eh, 80, eh. But anyways. I also liked the uh, early, early Glenn Campbell, especially uh, when he did Bob Jimmy Webb's songs. So let's take a break here. I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road.
version of the same song, but with Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66. Same song, just different, just the way they interpret differently. I like it. You know, are you concerned about what the Biden administration is doing? Well, I am. And I decided to learn more about gold IRAs to help me diversify. Now, did you know you can buy gold for your IRA or a 401k? Did you know that? You can. And gold can't be tracked like digital currency. And no one has to know what you're buying. And there's no way to print more of it. Now, the best resource for gold IRAs is Augusta Precious Metals. Their track record is no less than phenomenal. They have thousands of happy customers, and they're at the absolute best. You could, for lack of a better word, you could say they are amazing. So learn why thousands of Americans are getting gold IRAs as part of their retirement portfolios. You need to contact Augusta Precious Metals and get their free guide. I'm serious about this. 
you have to educate yourself on this if you're going to do it, and you need you need to do it. So do this. Make it easy. Grab your little zombie box and text CONTRA, C-O-N-T-R-A, to 68592. C-O-N-T-R-A, CONTRA, 68592. Or, 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 you could go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. That's AugustaPreciousMetals.com. It's true. It's all true, I'm telling you. I wouldn't lie to you guys. Oh, boy. Have you or someone you know ever had a hard drive crash? Or maybe your cell phone or tablet died, taking all of your pictures with it. You've thought about backing up your data, but all of the plans out there cost too much money for just a little bit of storage space. Well, now there's a solution. Got backup? That's right, Got Backup will allow you to back up unlimited devices, up to 6 terabytes of data, for only $9.97 a month. And that's not all. You can earn commissions by referring friends and family, too. Got Backup is the only data storage center that allows you to earn income on your referrals. Check out Got Backup now. Log on to john-jeffers.com. That's john-jeffers.com. Log on now. You're locked on to the Contra Radio Network. Indeed you are. Welcome to the Jeffers Brief. Now, you may not have heard this. Mainstream media, those putzes that they are. This is by Gateway Pundit. Now, there are still no answers from the FBI on why they found it necessary to raid the home of a disabled U.S. veteran and shoot him dead on the morning of August 16th. Yeah, I know. Right now, you're damn near trying to keep your truck from going into the ditch. I get it. Right, Brandon? If I heard from my buddy, Brandon. Uh, Theodore Deschler was shot and killed when FBI's agents raided his home near Henderson, Tennessee. Now, Desher's family is looking for answers, and there's still no nurse, no news from the government on why they had to break out the windows, toss smoke bombs into the home, and then shoot Deschler, who was unarmed at the time. Now, the story first broke on local WBBJ on August 16th. WBBJ was tipped off by a local viewer about the shooting. No more major media or local media covered the story. It was buried for another week when WBBJ posted a second report days later on August 20th. The family says the FBI still to this day refuses to tell them why they conducted the raid and killed Deschler. Oh, you will be saying you know why they're not saying anything? Two words, Ruby Ridge. This smacks of Ruby Ridge. Brother Russell Deschler spoke with reporters last week. He says there's three up front and two on the sides that they broke out. They were shooting flash and smoke grenades. I would assume they're talking about the windows. Now via WBBJ, the FBI told Deschler's mother, who was at home at the time, it's none of your business, when she asked 
why they were there at her home. If you're on my private property, you're damn right it's my business. Now, according to the suspect's mother, who chose not to appear on camera, she was at the residence at the time. Now, according to her, the FBI beat on the door, and when she answered, they pulled her out of the residence and put her in the back of a police vehicle. When she asked why they were there, she was told, it's none of your business by the agents. She told us the entire incident was probably 15 minutes from the time the agents arrived to when her son was shot. It was a senseless act. You know, Teddy was a 100% disabled veteran. He had problems. He had severe PTSD. He had depression, but he was getting help for it. But this was senseless. He didn't have a weapon on him. He was just trying to get out of the house because it was filled with tear gas, Deschler said. Now, the family believes that Theodore was unarmed. They believe from the location of where the FBI agent took the shot through the garage window, you couldn't see into the kitchen. The garage was full of old furniture and an old fridge, plus a door in the garage that Theodore was standing behind. Now, the Chester County Independent is the only other mainstream media outlet that covered the FBI shooting, and there have been no new details after 10 days. Now, the, uh, the Gateway Pundit has reached out to a neighbor who said he witnessed the home attack. He told us he is a witness for the FBI and cannot speak to us at this time. Now, if it's me, if it is me, not only do I hire an attorney, but we go into court and we issue subpoenas immediately demanding the FBI preserve all evidence, including audio tapes, video tapes, and any and all after-action reports and names of every FBI agent on scene, as well as, uh, I imagine they have to have a warrant. I want to see the warrant as well. I want everything. That's me. That's what I would do. Pathetic. Now, let me ask you something. If, if election denial is a crime, the Democrats were doing it in 2000, 2004, 2016, and 2018. Now, this is, this is so good. Patriotic viral news. I like it, guys. Good job. So, this was, what is this written? This is so, so it looks like Trump got indicted again this week, the day after new revelations about Joe and Hunter Biden's pay-to-play bribery schemes came out. Trump was slapped with new charges. Isn't that amazing? This time, he was charged under an anti-Ku Klux Klan law that bans going about in a highway disguise. No, really, that actually happened. He was also indicted for saying words to the effect that the 2020 election was stolen. So how evil do you have to be to question an election like Trump did? Good grief. There's nothing like that has ever happened before, unless you count the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan, the, the 1988 election of George H.W. Bush, the 2000 election of George W. Bush, the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush, the 2016 election of Donald Trump, 
and the 2018 midterm elections. Those elections were all stolen from Democrats, obviously. If you haven't noticed the pattern, whenever a Republican wins the White House and is not an embarrassing landslide for the Democrats, like Reagan in 84, they concoct wild conspiracy theories about elections being stolen. Whenever a Democrat wins, you're not allowed to question the results because that election was clean as a whistle. Since Trump is being charged for crimes for doubting the 2020 election results, it's probably time that everybody starts paying attention. So this is what we're going to do. Here's almost every major Democrat from the last two plus decades denying Republican election victories. What the Democrats don't seem to realize is that they've set a precedent now for when a Republican takes the White House. Every single one of them can be arrested for what we're going to do right here. So listen to this. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He's an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice president? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election. And he was put in the office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally elected, is not legitimate. I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be a legitimate president. The one thing that Trump is fearful of uh, when it comes to his being president is that finally we will see how illegitimate his victory actually was. I have an objection. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. I object because people are horrified. He's an illegitimate president. Do you believe Trump is illegitimate president? What I believe is that there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by the Russian interference. But there absolutely is a cloud of illegitimacy. So that legitimacy is in question, yes. So that was a very tainted election. And in that sense, it's illegitimate. Why do you think the president is going to such great lengths to essentially prove that he beat you? Because he knows he didn't. He knows he's an illegitimate president. Stolen emails. Stolen drone. Stolen drone. Stolen election. Welcome to the world of unprecedented Trump. So do you believe President Trump is an illegitimate president? Based on what I just said, which I can't retract. <laughs> the Russian attempt to, ha to have the election, and frankly the FBI's uh, weighing in on the election, I think make the, make, makes his election illegitimate. There was a widespread understanding that this election was not on the level. We still don't know what really happened, Isaac. I mean, there's just a lot that I think will be revealed, history will discover. But you don't win by three million votes and have all this other shenanigan stuff going on and not come away with an idea like, whoa, something's not right here. The outcome of the election was affected by their interference. And now we need to know, you know to what degree, uh, if any, the Trump campaign was actually in collusion with, the, uh, with, so with Russia. He knows he's an illegitimate president. So of course he's obsessed with me. And 
I believe that it's a guilty conscience. We actually won the last presidential election, folks. They stole the last presidential election. And Al Gore won that election. I think he won it anyway. Actually, I think I carried Florida. Bush versus Gore. A court took away a presidency. If all the votes were counted in Florida, that Al Gore would be president today and George Bush would be backing off. I come from Florida where you and others participated in what I call the United States coup d'etat. There's no doubt in my mind that Al Gore was elected president. I rise to object to the fraudulent 25 Florida electoral votes. I must object because of the overwhelming evidence of official misconduct. Delivery the chair, and an attempt the to chair must remind me. It is signed by myself on behalf of my diverse constituents and the millions of Americans who have been disenfranchised by Florida's inaccurate vote count. The Supreme the, uh, Court, not the his, people of the United his, States, decided this election. Speaking to a Democratic group in Chicago Tuesday, he made it clear he thinks Al Gore was the winner. By the time it was over, our candidate had won the popular vote. And the only way they could win the election was to stop the voting in Florida. Catherine Harris, Jeb Bush, Jim Baker, and the Supreme Court hadn't tampered with the results. Al Gore would be president. The yeah, Supreme yes, Court elected the president. Al Gore won the state of Florida in 2000, although not the presidency. But the Supreme Court tampered? That's a large charge. The Supreme Court stopped the counting of the votes, and if they let the count go on, Al Gore would have got the necessary vote. The Supreme Court selected George W. Bush as the president. He was not elected. There is overwhelming evidence that George W. Bush did not win this election. What I observed uh, as a voter, as a citizen of Illinois, uh, four years ago, were troubling evidence of the fact that not every vote was being counted. I don't think that George W. Bush won the election. Uh, in 2000, I guess that would go because I, I think it, he probably lost Florida and also that nationwide. If you invite me back on this show in about eight weeks, I think you're going to learn that Al Gore actually did get all the votes in there. The court has been thwarting formation of the popular will. The most spectacular example being Bush versus Gore, where the majority by a 5 4 vote enjoined the counting of more than 100,000 ballots in Florida and essentially gave America its first court appointed president. <laughs> I think in 2000, everybody thought, well, he did win the election, Al Gore. After the election, when you stole the election, you came back here and said, get over it. No, we're not going to get over it. You know it, I know it, they know it. We won that election. Constantly shifting vote tallies in Ohio and malfunctioning electronic machines which may not have paper receipts, have led to additional loss of confidence by the public. The right to vote has been stolen from qualified voters. In 2004, the democratic process was thwarted. The 2004 presidential election in Ohio was riddled with unnecessary problems. Some machines malfunctioned, causing votes to be counted more than once, or not at all. Based upon an inordinate number of allegations suggesting gross voting rights violations and misconduct I join with my colleagues in objecting to counting the state of Ohio's electoral votes. As in 2000, the votes of many who wanted to vote were not, in fact, counted. This last Friday night, I, I arranged to meet Senator Kerry at a fundraiser to give him a copy of my book. He told me he now thinks the election was stolen. The wife of John Kerry said she has lingering doubts about the legitimacy of the election. Her theory goes like this. 
two brothers she calls hard right Republicans own 80% of voting machines in the US. Therefore, it would be easy to hack into the mother machines that control the electronic voting. There were numerous irregularities in Ohio, including large percentages of rejections of provisional balloting, problems with voting machines. As we look at our election system, I think it's fair to say that there are many legitimate questions about its accuracy, about its integrity. There are still legitimate concerns over the integrity of our elections. The question, obviously, is how many instances we're not caught that we don't know about. Uh, number one, we've seen a lot of what I call honest glitches where it just didn't work right, but also that these machines are hackable. A dishonest employee of the vendor or a dishonest employee of a local board of elections or simply someone who knows electronics uh, and has a computer at home. Um, could hack into these machines and uh, put in a secret instruction to disregard every 20th Democratic vote or add 10% to the carrier to the Bush vote or whatever, he might not ever know it. I agree with tens of millions of Americans who are more, very worried that when they cast the ballot on an electronic voting machine that there is no paper trail to record that vote. The numerous irregularities that occurred with the electronic voting machines in Ohio on November the 2nd of last year point to an unresolved national crisis. We cannot declare that the election of November 2nd, 2004 was free and clear and transparent and real. There must be independent testing of the voting machines used in Ohio. I'm not confident that the election in Ohio was fairly decided. We know that there was substantial voter suppression and the machines were not reliable. The members of Congress who have brought this challenge are speaking up for their aggrieved constituents, many of whom may have been disenfranchised in this process. Treating today's electoral vote count in Congress as a meaningless ritual would be an insult to our democracy unless we registered our own protest against the obviously flawed voting process that took place in so many of our states. Voters who wish to cast a vote for president or vice president can't approach the polls with certainty that their vote will be counted. One of the most significant problems in Ohio and in many other states was the lack of measures to ensure the integrity of electronic voting machines. In 2004, they caused Democratic voters in Ohio to wait for eight hours before they could cast their ballot. They turned the Department of Civil Rights and the Justice Department into the Voter Suppression Division with voter ID laws, voter purging, voter caging, voter intimidation. There aren't going to be any more election stealings. And despite the final tally and the inauguration and the situation we find ourselves in, I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. Without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. Andrew Gillum is the governor of Florida. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. This is not a speech of concession. If she'd had a fair election, she already would have won. You refuse to concede and say that you lost. Do you stand by that decision today? Absolutely. The election was not fair. The process was not fair. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. It's clear. I think that Stacey Abrams' election is being stolen from her. You uh, notably did not concede. I did not. Okay, you acknowledged that he won, but you did not concede. Correct. Five months later, 
you still feel like your opponent won through voter suppression? Yes. Georgia voters did not have their votes counted. They were not allowed to cast votes. They had their votes discarded. She would be the governor of Georgia today had the governor of Georgia not disenfranchised 1.4 million Georgia voters before the election. That's what happened to Stacey Abrams. They took the votes away. Was the election in Georgia statewide a free and fair election? It was not a free and fair election. Reminder, she wrote, Brian Kemp stole the gubernatorial election from Georgians and Stacey Abrams. And it was not fair to those who filled out absentee ballots. And depending on the county you sent it to, it either was counted or not counted, assuming you received it in time. Brian Kemp oversaw for eight years the systematic and systemic dismantling of our democracy, and that means there could not be free and fair elections in Georgia. It certainly gave the appearance of unfairness, and I think it was um, unfair. Stacey ran a great campaign. She probably won. But will I say that this election was not tainted, was not a disinvestment and a disenfranchisement of thousands of voters? I will not say that. Candidates both black and white lost their races because they have been deprived of the votes they otherwise would have gotten. And the clearest example is from next door in Georgia. Stacey Abrams should be governor leading that state right now. So you don't feel that you lost fair and square. I'm not saying it's going to be legit. It's the increase in the prospect of being illegitimate is a direct proportion of not being able to get these these reforms passed. Well, what do you think about that one? Huh? Yeah. And those were all Democrats screaming about, you know, denying the election. Election denial is a crime. Okay, preppers, let's what? You know what? Have I got time? I think I do. I do. I got time. Um, the question is, you know, if you're a prepper, what are you going to put into your tactical backpack? Well, I did find an article uh, from Ukranska Pravda. Uh, they're combat medics, medics known as Field Toad and Step Viber, and they they want to carry, you know, what do they carry in their backpacks as combat medics? Uh, one teaches tactical medicine mainly in the rear, and the other one practices it at the front. They are not relatives, but, you know, blood sisters, kind of. So, uh, Nazarova and Resnick are fighting for the opportunity to transfuse wounded people at the pre-hospital stage with blood, rather than simply put them on a saline drip. Now, tactical medicine instructor Nazarova and combat medic Resnick are not only defending the right to transfuse blood at the front, they're fighting for more modern, flexible, and non-lethal military medicine. So Resnick's tactical backpack uh, until 2022 wasn't even familiar with tactical medicine. Now she's one of its representatives. As a combat medic with the hospitalers medical battalion, she can tell us how she stabilized the wound on the road from Solidar or hit from shells in the basement at Bakhmut. And as ambassador for blood in the army, this is the definition she gave herself on Twitter. She can tell us about her feelings of disgust when the medical forces command blocked the point of the cabinet minister's resolution that would have allowed combat medics to to transfuse blood. A former biology teacher, you know, she constantly hears reproaches from her professionally qualified colleagues that she does not have a medical degree. However, 
The wounded she takes out from under fire from the zero position of the front line asking for painkillers, not a diploma. Though she still does not consider herself to be a member of the military or a doctor, although at the moment, Rena is working mainly on the front line rather than the home front. Now the front is a place of quick victory, so if you remove a person from the front line, you're a good person. If you also happen to survive, that's great, she says, but on the home front, you have to stand up to, for reforms in military medicine. You have to endure delays and make compromises. So, her tactical backpack, backpack what would it contain? Uh, here are her words about the meaning of each uh, item in her backpack. Now, let's see what we got here. Uh, geez, this is what happens when I have to do it on the run here. Man, they, and this is what I hate about some journalists, they do this. All right, uh, number one is form number 100. Military doctors are not quite military, not quite doctors. There are all kinds of terrible things that date from the Soviet era, overlap with each other, and this is, and there's total insanity. So, they will not connect the, the public health data. So, anyways, medical form 100 is this. You fill it out for the wounded. It is a Soviet piece of paper dating back to World War II. It's what they write down on there about their, uh, their health, the wounded. Car keys. Uh, boy, let me tell you something. Uh, da, 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 da. See what else. A toothbrush, obviously. A watch. Resuscitation kit. A history book. For some reason, she likes having a history book. Now she's on the a chocolate bar. Now she's on the front lines in Ukraine. Uh, Naza Rosa's tactical backpack comes with, uh, huh, a flask with bee pollen, I don't know, but that's what's on there. Uh, there's not, a, it's very difficult, a defibrillator it looks like, scissors. Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's not a very well-written article, and they don't tell you a lot, so. I'm sorry I even brought this article up. Hey, Los Angeles is just like California. It's dying a slow and painful death. Oh, yes, it is. All right, what do we got here? Uh, uh, just prior to Mayor Bass's announcement, a large... Group of coordinated thieves ransacked a Los Angeles area luxury clothing store and escaped with 100 grand worth of merchandise, according to the coppers. There's a well-known saying that politicians and law enforcement across Southern California and everywhere ought to heed. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I'm not sure what's called when different policies garner the same results. Maybe it's bad policy. Just over a week ago, Mayor Bass declared war on the recent smash-and-grab robbery trend infecting the, count, the, the county's retail stores. So she announced a new regional task force consisting of 22 investigators to focus entirely 
on, cur on curbing the shoplifting phenomenon sweeping Southern Cal. Unfortunately, it seems lawless perpetrators did not get the message. Since the task force, including officers from the police departments across the region, along with state and federal support was assembled, at least three more large group incidents have been reported. Now in the video, Citizen App showed five mass thieves ransacking a Dior counter inside a Macy's shop uh, of Santa Anita Mall. They grabbed a box of sets of perfumes, threw them into trash bags, and ran away as onlookers gasped. Separate incident also posted on the Citizen App. A video shows the aftermath of a flash mob robbery at a Foot Locker on Melrose Avenue, one of the city's most popular shopping districts. Now, some workers tried to confront the thieves and take the stolen merchandise back as they got into their driveway, or they got into a car and drove away. And an armed robbery report was made, but of course, no suspects were caught, despite the video clearly showing the suspects an identifiable car. And of course, you know, it just goes on and on. It's crime without punishment. Isn't it fun when you have woke laws, woke policies? Isn't it fun? It's just so much fun. I can't stand it. Well, my friends, time is running very short for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Jeffers Brief. I am John Jeffers coming to you from the Augusta Precious Metals studio. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And we will see you again shortly. Probably next week. All right. Anything else? Nope. I think that covers it. Thanks again for listening. Have a good one.